At a meeting of the National Arts Club in New York City in 1918, the venerated printmaker Joseph Pennell addressed club members on the topic of lithography. In his youth, several decades earlier, Pennell had been a protege of Whistler, and from that master he had learned not only the printmaker's art, but also what Whistler famously called the gentle art of making enemies. On this occasion, Pennell took, um, took the opportunity to upbraid a rival 25 years his junior, the painter George Bellows, who had recently entered the field of printmaking with alarming success. The point at issue was authenticity. Pennell insisted, hi, come in. Pennell insisted that artists should only paint or draw what they can observe in a direct face-to-face -face encounter. He denied that a true artist could, quote, could ever with any safety see and experience beyond the actual fact before him. With this, he launched a swipe at Bellows, who was in attendance that evening. The older artist singled out Bellows' much-praised new oil painting showing the death of Edith Cavill, the British Red Cross nurse executed by a German firing squad in 1915. Bellows had based his painting on a lithographic drawing, sorry, on a lithographic drawing he had completed several months earlier. If Mr. George Bellows, Pennell announced, had been himself present at the death, at the execution of Edith Cavill, and had seen the whole thing with his own eyes, he would have painted a far more authentic picture than the one he made up out of his head. Now, before telling you what, what Bellows said in reply, I should point out that this was a very strange comment to come from Joseph Pennell, who in that same year, 1918, produced what is certainly the most apocalyptic visual image to circulate in America during the First World War. Clearly, it too is a construct of the artist's imagination. It envisions a decapitated Statue of Liberty, her headline half-submerged in New York Harbor, while enemy warplanes bomb Manhattan into a seething cauldron of smoke and flame. Two million prints of this poster circulated throughout the land and seized Americans with dread and indignation at the almost inconceivable idea of an airstrike on Manhattan. No, Bellows replied to Pennell, I was not present at the murder of Edith Cavill, neither, so far as I've been able to learn, was Leonardo present at the Last Supper. The appeal here is to a higher order of representation than mere eyewitness literalism. Bellows's supporters cheered his witticism, which was much repeated because it linked their man to the great Renaissance master who was at once a careful scientific observer of natural phenomena and an inspired visionary, one who never allowed the limitations of time and space to rein him in. There's something theological about Bellows's remark, and not simply because he alludes to the most famous religious painting of Western art. The theology inheres in the romantic view that the inner eye can see reality more clearly than the outer one does, that artistic inspiration trumps empirical fact-gathering, and that in the making of true art, neither the hand, nor the eye, nor the brain of the artist ranks as high as the heart. The Bellows and his admirers would take to this lofty ground in the, fact, in the face of Pennell's criticism is nonetheless surprising. 
Bellows, after all, more than any other American artist of his era, was celebrated for his skills as a visual journalist, an eyewitness reporter of the seamy side of life, as seen in images such as these, one of which shows three homeless men inspecting a rancid scrap of meat retrieved from a garbage can, the other the execution of a prison inmate by a recently invented technology of state-dispensed death, the electric chair. His most famous picture, Stag at Sharkey's from 1909, makes a direct allusion to his self-appointed role as eyewitness. It shows the head of the balding painter on the lower right-hand side. That's him beneath the arm of the referee, peering over the edge of the ring. Everybody got him? Because I don't have a pointer. So. The position suggests an analogy between two types of canvas, the kind on which boxers box and that on which painters paint. Indeed, the self-portrait serves as an artist's signature and proudly declares, I was there, I saw this event with my own eyes. In the days before World War I, Bellows was America's Gustave Courbet, a sharp-eyed observer of working-class life and labor who had no truck with sentimental bourgeois idealism. Here I am comparing Courbet's The Stonebreakers from 1849 with Bellows's Blue Morning from 1909, an ethereal and yet gritty depiction of manual labor during the construction of a railway station. When asked to paint an angel for a mural in a church, Courbet had facetiously replied, I have never seen an angel. Show me an angel and I will paint you one. In principle, Bellows agreed. In 1918, however, he changed his mind about such matters, and with Edith Cavill, he painted his angel. His nation now at war, he turned to a different 19th century master for inspiration. He exchanged Courbet for Goya, adding, as the Spanish artist did, elements of the fantastic to his depiction of modern life. And these are both Goya images especially because Bellows did not have the opportunity to see the fighting in Europe firsthand, he was compelled by circumstances to forsake the eyewitness ethos. He did, after all, make an effort to join the army and see action at the front, but at 36, he was rejected because of his age. Unable to bear arms against the Germans, he fought them with chalk and paintbrush instead. His change of heart with regard to the war as well as to his role as an artist observer, shocked some of his associates. We can understand this when we consider his earlier political leanings. After leaving Columbus, Ohio for New York in 1904 to seek his fortune as an artist, the young Bellows had embraced the Greenwich Village version of socialism and anarchism that historians have dubbed the lyrical left a version of leftism congenial to artists, poets, and professors. The raw, muscular, energetic brand of urban realist painting that Bellows perfected was an amalgamation of Courbet, Manet, and Jacob Rees, the turn-of-the-century documentary photographer of New York City's poor. Here, along with two photographs by Rees from about a decade earlier, we see Bellows' paintings 42 Kids, from 1907, 
and cliff dwellers from 1913. The painter's visual verve perfectly suited the lyrical left. The house organ of the lyrical left was a lively and controversial illustrated monthly magazine called The Masses. It featured art, poetry, fiction, and political reporting by the era's leading left-wing artists, intellectuals, and activists. As seen in the cartoons and magazine covers assembled here, Bellows was among them. When hostilities broke out in Europe in 1914, the magazine unleashed a torrent of editorials, cartoons, and opinion pieces denouncing the imperialist origins of the war and ridic ridiculing the self-righteous bankers, clergymen, and press barons on both sides of the Atlantic who profited shamelessly from the war's continuation. Having their fling showing uh, the capitalists, it was basically they're all fat capitalists or clergymen celebrating um, the war, profit-making of the war. Although Bellows, unlike many of his fellow socialists, did not actively impose US intervention in the conflict, he worried that it would lead to the curtailment, if not downright suppression, of democratic civil liberties. Still, I think it's safe to say that during the buildup to the war, and even in its first days, Bellows was not a super patriot. That is, he was not keen on um, going to war. In this, he was quite unlike the pro-war activist child Hassam, who together with the aforementioned Joseph Pennell, hailed from an earlier generation and a more privileged social class. And like Pennell, he was Bellows's artistic nemesis. Here, welcome Simon. Here I show you Hassam's 1917 Impressionist painting, Early Morning on the Avenue, in May 1917. The avenue in question being Fifth Avenue at 54th Street, with flags of the Allied nations dancing beneficently across the skyline. Hassam's uptown views of Manhattan are altogether different from those of Bellows, such as New York, from six years earlier, 1911. Bellows's depiction of a downtown square is dense with crowds, thick with pigment, laden with atmosphere. The paint handling, like the mean streets it depicts, is rough, muscular, and abrasive. Bellows insists on the multi-class, multi-ethnic, multi-layered nature of New York, and by extension, America itself. Hassam's intent, much the opposite, is to celebrate unity, homogeneity, and social order. Indeed, early morning on the avenue, painted at the dawn of America's entry into the war, could even be understood as a retort against Bellows's 1913 painting, Cliff Dwellers, where it's not ceremonial flags of America and its allies that snap in the breeze over the heads of pedestrians, but rather the laundry of immigrants from around the world. Hassam, who was a staunch, advocate, a staunch preparedness advocate, began making patriotic flag paintings in 1916, about a year before America went to war. Bellows, at that time, treated warmongering satirically. A drawing that he first published in a West Coast anarchist magazine and then sent to the masses for wider circulation depicts Jesus as a convict, manacled, clad in prison stripes, bound by ball and chain, 
The Prince of Peace has been jailed for preaching the seditious words, thou shalt not kill, during wartime. Blessed are the peacemakers, as the drawing is called, appeared in the monthly's issue for July 1917. Bellows was looking closely in those days at Goya's early 19th century series of etchings known collectively as the Disasters of War, which had recently been exhibited in New York. Note how Christ in chains in, this, in his drawing echoes the stooped posture of the Spanish insurgent tied to an execution post in plate 15 of the disasters. Under the newly legislated Sedition Act, the July 1917 issue of the masses was barred by the Postal Service from being circulated by mail. This blockage eventually resulted in the demise of the publication and several of Bellows's fellow artist illustrators were threatened with prosecution for their more incendiary imagery, such as the notorious two I show here. In one, the Prince of Peace faces execution by an international firing squad comprised of soldiers representing the major combatant nations. In the other, and this is the one that particularly outraged people, a skeleton measures a young army recruit for his coffin. This was deemed particularly offensive by authorities who considered it a direct challenge to military conscription, and the artist had to flee to Mexico. Bellows, however, was not threatened with jail time, nor was he radicalized, as were other members of the lyrical left, by the heavy-handedness of the wartime government. To the contrary, he became increasingly pro-war in his attitude enraged by reports of German atrocities that streamed across the Atlantic. In keeping with his commitment to artistic activism against cruelty, corruption, and injustice, as seen in the numerous political cartoons and social satires he had contributed over the years to the masses and other leftist publications, including Blessed Are the Peacemakers, he felt the need to take a stand breaking ranks with his anti-war comrades, some of whom never forgave him for it, he announced his support for American intervention. It was at this point that he volunteered for combat service and was turned down. His subsequent campaign of art against the enemy is extraordinary in its ferocity. With Goya's disasters of war as his model, he feverishly churned out a series of lithographs that describe in ghastly detail the German army's march through neutral Belgium in the late summer of 1914, raping, pillaging, and torturing civilians whose insurgency they sought to contain. When these lithographs were exhibited in late 1918, a reviewer described them as, quote, brutal, full of horror, but reeking with truth, which adds to their poignancy. The artist's primary source of inspiration was the Bryce Committee report which appeared in May 1915. Viscount James Bryce, former British ambassador to the United States and a member of the International Court at The Hague, headed up a war crimes commission that took depositions from 1,200 1, witnesses and studied the captured war diaries of German combatants to determine the truth of allegations against the occupiers. The 61-page report makes for excruciating reading all the more so because of the matter-of-fact manner in which it is written. Printed in 30 languages, 
and sold in the US for 10 cents a copy, the document was readily available and widely circulated. Less than a week after the sinking of the Lusitania, as reported here on the front page of the New York Times on May 8, 1915, less than a week later, that newspaper devoted three full pages to an abridgment of the Bryce Report. It doesn't take training in critical research methods to question its rigor. Names of witnesses are withheld in respect for their privacy, but without proper attribution, some of the more fantastic claims seem like hearsay or outright invention. After the war, the Bryce Report was subjected to scathing criticism, and it has even been blamed for causing rumors of the Nazi mistreatment of Jews in the 1930s to be scoffed at as exaggerations by those who wished to avoid, who, those who wished to avoid being duped again by government and news media propaganda. Nonetheless, contemporary scholarship, scholarship of today, indicates that despite its flaws and probable exaggerations, the Bryce Report was essentially accurate. The German occupiers did commit atrocities of the type and gravity described. Now, I have to say again, this is controversial, and people are debating this to this day. At least seven of Bellows's war lithographs show how he imagined crimes outlined in Bryce, works of technical finesse and formal beauty with rich gradations of tone and dynamic compositions. They attract the eye, but punish it for what it sees. One, Belgium farmyard, depicts a dark outdoor setting where a German soldier pulling on his clothes stands over the supine body of a young female whom he has raped. In The Last Victim, three Loesch German, uh, German soldiers in a middle-class parlor stare hungrily at a distraught young woman who has entered the room to discover her mother, father, and brother sprawled dead or dying on the floor. The corresponding passage in Bryce's report declares, quote, at Erv, some 50 men escaping from the burning houses were seized, taken outside, and shot. At Melen, a hamlet west of Erv, 40 men were shot. In one household alone, the father and mother, their names withheld, were shot. The daughter died after being repeatedly outraged, and the son was wounded. These are among the more repertorial of Bellows's war lithographs. Others in the series seem downright phantasmagoric. In the Bacchanal, for example, the Bacchanal, for example, depicts German soldiers guzzling wine in the open space of a village while guards bring in a young mother whose hands are bound tightly behind her. A couple of small, naked children have been impaled on bayonets and are being waved in the air but no one takes notice, as if this were a common everyday experience. According to one of Bryce's unidentified witnesses, a drunken German soldier in the town of Malines, quote, drove his bayonet with both hands into a child's stomach, lifting the child into the air on his bayonet and carrying it away on his bayonet, he and his comrades still singing. Here, Bellows has combined two common themes in Northern Renaissance painting, the massacre of the innocents and the indifference of, of soldiers who torture holy martyrs. But he's updated the costumes and setting. In Gottstrafe, England, 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 
God punishes England, German soldiers nail captured Allied soldiers to doors made of rough wooden planks while a crowd looks on and jeers. In the cigarette, a solitary soldier seated in the shadows on the right side of the image scowls while smoking. On the left, the corpse of a man sags in a window frame beside a broken shutter. In the center, incandescently lit, a naked woman writhes in agony and shame. Her left arm, drenched in blood, extends high above her head, a spike driven through the palm to fasten her to the wall. A gaping hole where her left breast should be indicates that the smoker has torn it from her body. Bryce does not specifically describe this incident, but provides several accounts of sexual mutilation, as for example, Two young women were lying in the backyard of the house. One had her breasts cut off, the other had been stabbed. Could such nightmarish events really have occurred? Or was Bellows feverishly plunging into the depths of sadomasochistic fantasy? If not his own, then that of the collective unconscious as it periodically bubbled up in the martyred saint paintings of the old masters, as here in Sebastiano's Martyrdom of Saint Agatha, from 1519. As already mentioned, Goya's disasters of war etchings provided Bellas with the most compelling antecedent for his febrile imaginings of corporeal distress and dismemberment. So these are both Bellas from the series, I mean Goya's. That the Germans systematically committed atrocities against civilians cannot be disputed. In wartime, rape, pillage, and murder are common. But what about bayoneting babies, nailing prisoners to doors, and cutting off the breasts of women? Bellows believed, or allowed himself to believe, the worst of the enemy. He wanted to bear witness to the torture and killing, even though he had not seen those with his own eyes. It was an artist's responsibility, he insisted, to use the creative imagination to expose real-world crime and injustice, even when his knowledge of those was only secondhand. Reversing standard artistic practice in which original paintings provide the source for lithographic copies, Bellows felt so strongly about the work that poured out of him in the spring of 1918 that he set about turning five of his war lithographs into large and richly colored oils. The barricade, composed in the manner of a neoclassical frieze, shows German troops firing from behind a human screen of naked civilians, whose nudity symbolizes their utter vulnerability. The most disturbing of the five paintings, The Return of the Useless, alludes to the well-documented fact that the German occupiers had forced Belgian non-combatants into slave labor on the French front, in Belgium and in Germany itself. When these prisoners became too weak and broken down to work productively, hence useless, their captors shipped them home in boxcars. Bathed in queasy red hues and theatrically lit, the painting shows a frightened young blonde woman faltering out of the shadows of a cattle car interior, which holds her sick and dying fellow passengers. To her left, our right, a German guard herds disheveled, bloodied prisoners. And to her right, 
Another guard stomps on a fallen young man and beats him with the butt of a rifle. It's difficult to look at this painting today without thinking of the Holocaust that lay ahead. Bellows may not have been an eyewitness to the sort of crimes he depicts, to the crime he depicts, but to judge from occurrences that became commonplace in Europe less than a generation later, he got the iconography of deportation just right. Of the five paintings he made from his war lithographs, the most acclaimed, despite Joseph Pennell's disparaging remarks, was Edith Cavill. <coughs> Drawing on motifs borrowed from an array of sources, including old master religious art, contemporary recruitment posters, the Broadway stage, and the Hollywood melodrama, Bellows gave viewers a heightened sense of the reality of the scene depicted by calling to mind other types of visual artifacts that already worked for him, worked for them as conveyors of truth about the external world. Indeed, we might say that the painting privileges referential realism over eyewitness realism. By referential realism, I mean that it refers the viewer to other previously acquired data, visual and otherwise, providing a sense of familiarity and rightness, hence authenticity, to the scene depicted. The execution of Nurse Cavill was one of the most widely publicized stories of the Great War, and in death, Cavill became its iconic female victim. At the time of her arrest by the Germans in 1915, she was a 49-year-old English Red Cross nurse supervising a hospital in Brussels. The Germans accused her of secretly helping hundreds of wounded Allied prisoners to escape into Holland. She admitted to the charges against her, and the Germans sentenced her to death. Despite a worldwide outcry for clemency, a firing squad dispatched her at dawn on the morning of October 12, 1915. Sir George Frampton's sculptural memorial was unveiled in St. Martin's Square in London on that date in 1920. It was directly across from the National Portrait Gallery. Experts in international law agreed that the Germans were well within their rights to execute Nurse Cavill. But the wizards of British propaganda discerned a golden opportunity in her sentencing and made the most of it. At least 28 books and pamphlets about her were issued in the period, as well as commemorative coins and stamps and special illustrated press editions. And license was occasionally made to envision her as a martyred young beauty. Americans were particularly distressed by Nurse Cavill's death. According to one historian of wartime propaganda, quote, she was middle-class Americans made an aunt. The profession of nursing is one for which Americans have only the greatest respect. The Germans could not have outraged this country more if they had executed Florence Nightingale. She was the ideal heroine. Given the relentless assault of provocative propaganda that circulated in America about the death of Nurse Cavill, Bellows's depiction might have seemed especially real and authentic, especially because of its low-key, non-sensationalist manner. The artist chose, after all, to show the nurse neither dead nor dying, but rather in a quiet moment preceding execution. In other words, the depiction may have seemed real because it did not venture into the histrionic territory of previous images and depictions of the event.
Instead, Bellows shows Nurse Cavill radiant in white, stoically descending a prison staircase into a courtyard in which guards engage in nocturnal conversation or lose themselves in slumber. The subject calls to mind old master scenes of martyrdom and salvation, such as Raphael's deliverance of St. Peter from prison, in which a saintly figure withstands the oppressive darkness of captivity, and Piero della Francesca's resurrection with its sleeping guards. And yet, even though the painting eschews melodrama, harking instead to the sort of stoicism, oh, I have a few of my students from this morning here, so you'll get this painting. Um, Harkening instead to the sort of stoicism memorably, memorably embodied by Benjamin West's famous 18th century history painting, Agrippina landing at Brundisium with the ashes of Germanicus. Despite that, it nonetheless, I would say, derived a sort of rebound energy from the most harrowing of the era's propaganda posters. Two well-known examples of these are Ellsworth Young's Remember Belgium and Fred Spears' Enlist. Composed in a vertical format, the poster on the left silhouettes a pair of figures against a brownish-green sky flecked with burning cinders. On the low horizon, a conflagration consumes a town somewhere in a mythical Belgium. The silhouettes reveal a dance of opposition between a, a walrus-mustached, spiked-helmeted German soldier and the young, pubescent girl he drags behind him, presumably with sexual intent. The poster on the right shows a ghostly, wreath-like young mother sinking to the bottom of the sea with an infant cradled in her arms. Bubbles rise from her lips, indicating she is not yet dead, and a fish floats by as an impassive onlooker. Dark and murky, gray, green, and brown, the oceanic depths surrounding the mother and child chilled viewers who required no supplementary text to understand the, painting, the picture's illusion to the sinking of the Lusitania. Edith Cavill is not nearly as direct as either of these in its appeal to the viewer's emotions. But because viewers came to it already having seen posters like these, which aroused their enmity against the Germans for desecrating female purity and innocence, because of that, the Bellas painting could only ever have been seen by his contemporaries against the backdrop of those other far more inflammatory images. Figuratively, if not literally, it was framed by them. I want to point to another implicit framing or enveloping of Edith Cavill, this time by Bellows's own image making. His 1919 painting, The Studio, based on an earlier Christmas card lithograph, shows the Bellows family at home on Christmas morning, a domestic idyll in progress. The artist's two daughters play together in the lower right foreground, while to the left, the artist paints a portrait of his wife, Emma. Various other members of the extended family occupy the midground and the mezzanine. In Edith Cavill, Bellows transforms his cheery home on 19th Street into the dank Belgian prison where the British nurse was executed. And he uses Emma Bellows, the mistress of his home and mother of his children, as the model for Miss Cavill. Thus we see that the war in Europe, which he could only know secondhand, nonetheless resonated for him in a highly personal manner. 
Shortly after Bellows's untimely death in 1925, one of his defenders excused the excesses of Bellows's war paintings by claiming that, the art, that artists, quote, are able to visualize atrocities more completely than most men can. And thereby, quote, he suffered from a kind of indwelling excitement during the war that disturbed artists to a point not yet admitted in print. Bellows, the friend explains, came to refer to his war paintings as his hallucinations, but he was not ashamed of having drawn and painted them. The later champion of Bellows, Henry Sharp Young, reminded his readers that the artist's fanatical outrage against the Germans was by no means unique. Quote, this was not a private obsession. It was as contagious as Spanish flu. For that generation, the war was the end of the world, and there was no doubt that it was the Germans' fault. According to Young, the artist's work was compromised by his participation in the orgy of animosity. Quote, this was the most violent emotion of his life, and it had a bad effect on his art. His war pictures are the worst he ever painted. And this is uh, like a great champion of Bellows. In the 1930s, the journalist Gilbert Seldes, looking back at the earlier period, ruefully noted, I now realize that we were told nothing but bunkum, that we were shown nothing of the realities of war, that we were, in short, merely part of the great Allied propaganda machine whose purpose was to, was to sustain morale at all costs and help draw unwilling America into the slaughter. To return to earlier in this talk, we need to ask ourselves, who was ultimately right? Joseph Pennell, who faulted Bellows for making things up, even though he too did so under the pressure of war, or Bellows, who claimed for himself a higher authority based on his empathetic response to atrocities he only read about, he only read about but vividly imagined and made plastically real. I'm not answering that question for you, I'm just posing it. Once the war was over, large numbers of Americans, perhaps not a majority of them, but quite a few nonetheless, <coughs> came to believe they had been bamboozled by government-sponsored misinformation that had been widely disseminated by artists and writers, Bellows among them. As the Bellows scholar Carol Troyan observes, quote, the discrediting of the Bryce Report caused many Americans to feel that the bestiality of the Germans had been greatly exaggerated and that the United States had been tricked and manipulated into entering the war. Because they placed so much emphasis on the Germans' abuse of civilians, Bella's war series came to be regarded as part of the deception. By 1920, Bellows's war images were largely, largely withdrawn from view. And by the time of his sudden and premature death five years later, they were considered an embarrassment, a stain on his reputation. Only recently have they come again to the fore, perhaps as curiosities, fossils of a long-vanished mindset. On the other hand, today, in a new era of popular hysteria against enemies regarded as inhuman monsters, they take on frightening relevance. As a matter of contrast, let us look at a nearly contemporaneous work by Bellows's generation-older countryman, the Anglo-American portrait painter and landscape artist John Singer Sargent. Sargent produced one of the most poignant artistic images to come out of World War I, 
an unusually large frieze-like composition called Gast. Unlike any of Bellas's war paintings, this was based on first-hand observation. Under the auspices of the British War Art Office, Sargent had visited the front and been moved to see groups of blinded soldiers leaning on one another for support as they proceeded to a field hospital. With almost wry understatement, the mature sergeant provides an account of war's devastation. And beyond that, he puts forward a metaphor that can be understood as criticizing the incompetence of political and military leadership. War for sergeant is a matter of the blind leading the blind, a point he makes clear with his allusion to the Flemish artist Peter Bruegel's legendary 19, or 1550s painting of that title. So, to sort of inescapable uh, illusion there. By comparison, Bellows's reactions were brash and strident, those of an artist in early middle age who had already drifted past his greatest accomplishments as a chronicler of the urban stage. Sargent relied on first-hand observation, a craft to craft a very detailed, if somewhat allegorical, view of war and its corrosive effects on the human spirit. Bellows, it seems, was flailing, trying to recapture some lost spark, some naked honesty that had faded from his life with the coming of middle age, material success, critical acclaim, and a happy marriage. In my view, he substituted polemical outrage for his earlier commitment to careful observation and clear-eyed insight. And this did not lead to a good result. His, in, his righteous indignation at atrocities that he read about but did not witness prompted him to imagine static and cartoon-like depictions of violence. These lack, on one hand, the raw, invigorating, vibrant beauty of his earlier New York City urban landscapes and the sharp, incisive humor of his drawings of metropolitan street life. To be sure, physical violence, brutality even, was always a key component of Bellows's work. It's part of what makes him stand out today as the best, the most viewable of the early 20th century American artists known collectively as the Ashcan School. This is obviously apparent in his boxing paintings. According to a friend from Columbus who reported it years after the artist died, he once remarked, I don't know anything about boxing. I'm just painting two men trying to kill each other. In his prime, Bellows was great because his art epitomized a hammer blow against the so-called genteel tradition. He was doing in the field of art something equivalent to what his one-time roommate, Eugene O'Neill, was doing in the realm of theater, overturning its obsessive concern with social propriety and neatness of form. The peak of Bellows's holy, or if you will, unholy violence, comes in his extraordinary series of excavation paintings in which the bowels of lower Manhattan are ripped open by men with sledgehammers and robotic earth-devouring machines. These are paintings of menacing beauty. And I just have to say they're so much more beautiful than what these reproductions in this light give you. They're quite raw and, and powerful. Less overtly so, his depictions of New York City in winter are also laced with a terrible, violent beauty. Take, for example, the lone tenement. 
A stunning architectural portrait of an isolated and dilapidated tenement building stranded at the edge of an icy river and overshadowed by the rusty span of an iron bridge, while puny, ill-clad figures, little more than urban ciphers, huddle for warmth around small fires in the snow. The brushwork shows Bellows at his best as a pugilist with a paintbrush, slashing and jabbing at the canvas with a flurry of bold, decisive strokes. Other urban landscapes, such as rain on the river, or even the at first glance anodyne blue snow, the battery, ring extraordinary beauty from tumultuous brushwork, harsh color contrasts, and in the latter painting, the eye-assaulting glare of bright sun on crisp white snow. But these are only violent in an implied or metaphoric way, having to do with the cacophonous rhythms of life in the big city. They were stylistically violent as well, at least in the eyes of genteel viewers more accustomed to bland urban imagery. The war series, however, is overtly, even hyperbolically violent. With these works, Bellows set aside his commitment to eyewitness realism because his greater goal was to shake Americans out of their moral lethargy and force them, as the title of a book by Susan Sontag puts it, to regard the pain of others. Sontag remarks of Goya's war etchings, quote, that the atrocities perpetuated by the French soldiers in Spain didn't happen exactly as pictured hardly disqualifies the disasters of war. Goya's images are a synthesis. They claim things like this happened. Bellows's war images do the same. Does that justify them in his case? What was gained and what was lost by his imagining atrocities he could not verify, drawing on unreliable sources and thereby playing into the hands of the propaganda machine? The job of a writer or an artist, Sontag observes, quote, is not to have opinions but to tell the truth and to refuse to be an accomplice of lies and misinformation. Similarly, similarly Ernest Hemingway once said, a writer's job is to tell the truth. His standard of fidelity to the truth should be so high that his invention of his experience should produce a truer account than anything factual can be. He continues, for facts can be observed badly, but when a good writer or artist is creating something, he has time and scope to make of it an absolute truth. Edith Cavill demonstrates a level of tranquility of nonviolence that sets it apart from the overheated atrocity lithographs that Bellows made under the influence of Goya. Images that a Bellows admirer later apologetically characterized as, quote, reckless emotionalism. The painting of Cavill approaching her death has an eerie cast to it, a sickly gray-green tint that gives the viewer an anxious, queasy feeling. Three types of nocturnal lighting suffuse the image. The harsh yellow flare of gas lanterns, which rhythmically st stab out of the shadows, the ethereal glow of moonlight behind the sto stone archway in the upper right corner, and the beatific radiance of Nurse Cavill as she calmly descends the staircase toward her martyrdom. Here, Bellows, a painter of modern life who is by turns romantic, sardonic, satiric, and hot-headed, 
steps back from the tendentious politics of his other, more polemical war imagery to produce a complex rumination on the nature of bravery and self-possession in a world of stone-cold indifference. Instead of attacking the Germans as subhuman sadists and thus forsaking artistic truth for a roundhouse swing at the enemy of the day, Bellas uses them as markers of life that goes on in its crude, unremarkable way while suffering occurs unnoticed in its midst. The painting is about war, yes, but much more than war. In Sontag's terms, it is not an opinion piece. It is a meditation on suffering, on selfhood at the moment of extinction. In that regard, it is one of the most truthful of Bellas's short, one of the most truthful works of Bellas's short, brilliant, and tempestuous career. In the end, Bellas's Belgium was a construct of his imagination. This construct was due in large part to British propagandists who distorted and exploited German misdeeds for political gain, and also, of course, by the Germans themselves who authorized criminal behavior against the civilian, Belgian civilians. If we look for verifiable truth in these paintings, drawings, and lithographs, we'll not find it. But perhaps they bring other levels of truth to the fore. Let's end by juxtaposing two famous quotations from the era, both of them issued not long after the war was over. One is from the British politician Arthur Ponsonby, who published a post-war diatribe against propaganda, which he entitled Falsehood in Wartime. When war is declared, writes Ponsonby, truth is the first casualty. To this, he adds, there must have been more deliberate lying in the world from 1914 to 1918 than in any other period of the world's history. The other quotation is from Bellows's contemporary, Pablo Picasso, who observed, art is a lie that makes us realize the truth. As we've seen this afternoon, Bellows's incendiary war pictures fall somewhere into the abyss that separates these two comments. In our world today, in which civilian populations are again subject to extreme brutality, it's hard to know now, it's as hard to know now as it was back then, how to work our way through this abyss, who to listen to, whose word to trust, in which course of action we, as individuals and as a collective society, can take without ultimately doing ourselves and those we wish to save more harm than good. Bellows's drawings and paintings of wartime atrocities in Belgium a little more than a century ago are worth resurrecting, for they remind us all too clearly how unclear things become in the wake of war. Rather than condemn him for his blind acceptance of the atrocity reports with their difficult to disentangle blend of fact and prevarication, let us ask ourselves how easily we too, in the present day, can be duped by news and fake news and wars and rumors of wars and information and misinformation. Bellows is us in this regard, an early victim of large-scale, systematic, and lethal fact-bending. We need somehow to find a better way than he had to dedicate ourselves to that ever-elusive and yet absolutely indispensable entity known as truth. Thank you very much. <laughs>